That's for sure. Well, good morning, everybody. Always great to see you. And that was just a friendly way to tell you to sit down down and keep quiet. I like these ladies. They just keep going. Look, don't you see? These ladies are great. No, I like it. They're very secure in themselves. They don't care what people think. They're just... No, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, well. Wonderful to see everyone. Thanks for coming, even without donuts. You passed the test. That's real commitment. We're going to church even in the absence of donuts. Wow. Yeah. BYOD, bring your own donuts. Uh, So we're in the Psalms. Here's a test. Do you know which one? Psalm 5, it is. Now here's the beauty of the Psalms. It's really easy to find. Just open your Bible around midway and you be in it. So uh, after Psalm 4 and before Psalm 6 is Psalm 5. So that's really good. So turn there if you will and we are going to talk through it. David wrote it. It's a prayer. He's praying because he's troubled. And he's praying to God because he knew God would hear. And can you see uh, at the top of the psalm the uh, inscription which says, For the choir director, for flute accompaniment. Does your Bible say anything else? Or for the musician, for flute, does it have a different maybe yes. rendering? What does it say? It says for flutes, but none of us play the flute in here. Well, that, that's really true, and, and that is, uh, how shall I say, another irrelevant comment <laughs> from my dear brother. <clears throat> what, what I'm going for is the, the Hebrew word rendered here flute can also be rendered wind instrument, wind instrument, or flute. Here's the point. Say again. Or, excuse me, not wind. Stringed instruments. That is true. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That is true. Flute or stringed instruments. You're right. You're right. Sorry. And uh, don't you find it to be fascinating? By the way, that is part of inspired Scripture. Uh, that notation, that direction to the director of the choir has not been added by the editors or translators of your Bible. That's in there. Because remember, this is the hymn book of ancient Israel. So what the psalmist had written and its poetry was conformed to music and became part of the worship experience in ancient Israel. So uh, the psalmist gives a reminder for the director of the choir, he's essentially saying, these words would sound good with flute accompaniment or with the accompaniment of other uh, instruments. 
And so that is interesting. In fact, 55 times in the Psalms, you'll see this notation for the choir director, reminding us uh, that this is musical. Alrighty, look at verse 1 now. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. You know what we're looking at? We're looking at the private prayer life of one who was troubled. So we can get an idea as we read this in other Psalms how to speak to God. Don't be ashamed if you don't know exactly. You know you could, but you don't know how you can. So we'll find out. Can you see he's troubled and he cries out to God to listen? He says, consider my groaning. This is not a casual prayer. It's not a normal petition. He hurts. He groans. Which tells me, and it should tell you, even followers of the Lord could groan. The throes of life sometimes create great pain and heartbreak. So you want to resist the words of those who say, if you're a Christ follower, you should have no pain. That just doesn't seem to be right. You live in this world, as do I, and sometimes the circumstances of it can overwhelm us, so we groan and cry out to God. But here's the point. Let your groaning and mine not be due to our personal sin. It makes us groan too. When we sin, that is to take our lives into our own hands, it never works out. So there's pain. And we groan. Let not our groaning be due to our own sinful choices, but rather to our connection with Christ. He suffered, did he not? And so to the extent that we are Christ ones, so too will we. Sometimes we'll suffer because we publicly identify with him and we groan. At other times it's because we're growing to be more like him. And the growth pains cause us to grow. And when you became a Christ follower he began to take quite an interest in pruning you so as to be ready for kingdom culture and so as to look more like him. And the pruning process hurts, causes us to groan. So that kind of groaning is uh, okay. Let's just not groan because we have transgressed. So David cries out, and he says in verse 2, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So we find out something about prayer. It puts your problems into words. That's one aspect of prayer. We'll see others. To pray is to verbalize what's going on. So if you don't know what to say to God, say to Him what your heart is saying to you. 
And your heart might be saying, you hurt, you groan. Put it to words, that's prayer. But make sure you're putting it to the right one. David wants to make sure we're not being mistaken about it. And so he says, I'm crying to my God and my King. You see it? It's good to talk to ministers, possibly counselors, close friends. But I think our primary recourse ought to be, as was David's, to our King and our God. You see the personal possessive pronoun, my king, my God, that's the key. If he had that personal relationship, prayer means you take advantage of it. It's kind of like our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. There's a connection. Make use of it. So that's what he does. And in verse 3 he says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, there it is again, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Do you remember when we started our study in the Psalms, we mentioned uh, that it's Hebrew poetry, which is characterized not by rhyming, but by something called Hebrew parallelism. Meaning, oftentimes you'll see a thought expressed and another one which relates to it. So here you see a good example of parallelism. First phrase, in the morning you'll hear my voice. The second, in the morning I'll order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. That's an example of what's called synonymous parallelism where the second phrase is synonymous with the preceding one, but enhances it, gives a fuller picture. David is saying, in the morning, I order my prayer to you. In other words, as the day begins, David says, I begin to be conscious of you and to talk to you. When does a knight put on his armor, in other words? Not at bedtime, but in the morning. Because the world is filled with challenges. David said, therefore, O God, I will make first recourse to you, first thing in the morning. So now we learn something else about prayer. Let the day begin with your conscious awareness of God Ask him to help you through the day. So David prays in verse 3 as if he expects God to hear. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. And in the morning, I'll order my prayer to you. Look, and eagerly watch. Uh, That's kind of a spirit of expectancy. Have you ever prayed to God? about a burden which is on you, but only temporarily left it in his hands? And at the amen, have you not picked it up and then tried to carry it and or resolve it yourself? See, that would be a prayer prayed in unbelief. 
Because prayer is to transfer the burden onto the shoulders of Almighty God and off of you. So if it's an utterance expressing need and relief, and then you pick it up, you're essentially saying to God, I guess I don't really believe you're going to come through. But David said here, oh no, I have now petitioned to you. I've put my problem to words. I addressed my needs to you and you only. And now I'm done. Now I simply watch to see what marvelous things you're going to do on my behalf. And he does, but we have to leave the burden where we left it. So David does, and he expects God to come through. And then verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Um, Do you notice what he's doing in verse 4? He's asking for nothing. (laughs) Because now we see another aspect of prayer. One is put words to your problems. Uh, But the second is to simply identify and declare who God is. Is it to remind God of who He is? No, it's to remind the one who prays of who He is. Why? Because it's transforming. You have this overwhelming problem and then you reflect on the bigness of God and somehow the problem doesn't loom quite as large in comparison to God. So if the problem is bigger than the God you are addressing, you are addressing the wrong God. Because God is bigger than anything that comes our way. So David just sits back and reflects on the attributes of God and he said, I'm distressed by the wickedness around me and by the evildoers who are putting upon me. But wait a minute, you are not a God who takes pleasure in all this. You don't take pleasure in wickedness and in fact no evil dwells with you. Have you ever found yourself doing something like this. I hope so. That you can petition God, but this is praise. And praise simply identifies and calls attention to who God is. And sometimes that's all you and I need. It's therapy. And you see it in the Psalms a lot. You'll see an expression of catastrophic pain. And by the time the psalmist moves himself to the end of his poem, having reflected on who God is, he finds tremendous relief. Did God change? Oh no. The one who prayed was changed. Did the circumstances change? Maybe, but not necessarily. It's the one who prayed who changed. The one who prayed was enveloped by the problem. Now the one who prayed is enveloped by the God who sits on the throne. See the difference there? So verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. 
Strong language. Wow. A bit of a surprise, maybe. You hate all who do iniquity. To such extent, look verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So that tells me God is not a flower child. Wow. He's strong. And he so loves his holiness that there is the outpouring of his wrath upon the unholy who do not turn from it. In an upcoming Wednesday night, we're going to speak about hell and the attendance will go way down. It's not a popular subject, but as I've been studying it, I found out it actually is a real place, an eternal condition, and God came up with the idea. And so I wonder, how could I square the love of God with the outpouring of His wrath? And then I realized the reason why I even struggle with the two concepts is that I underestimate the holiness of God. He's really holy. And I underestimate just how offensive sin is to a holy God. And I underestimate it because I'm comfortable with it, much more so than He is. But if God didn't hate evil and the evildoer, God would not be true to His holy nature. And He loves His holiness too much to compromise it. So you've heard the nice expression, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And that is only sometimes true. He actually not only hates the evil, but even the evildoer who refuses the pardon which is offered by God. So notice now in the next verse how David transitions from this characteristic of God, his justifiable holy wrath. And notice what he says in verse 7. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, some say, how could God hate and love? Well, you figure it out. All I know is he does. So verse 5 and 6 speak of his hatred for sin and verse 7 speaks of his abundant loving kindness and David said, by it I will enter your house. Now this is odd because you would expect David to say, but as for me, I'm different than those evildoers. I'm different than those bad guys. But as for me, I possess a measure of virtue they do not. But as for me, I have your favor through the doing of religious things, but they do not. If ever there was an opportunity for David to contrast himself from those based on his own merits, this would be it. But he doesn't. He calls attention not to his own character, but to the character of God. But as for me, by... Your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. And folks, that means access and intimacy. 
David said, I am like them, but for your grace. I possess their nature, which inclines me to sin. I'm born in it, and I like it. But by your nature, by your abundant loving kindness, I have been granted access to the inner recesses of your person. You have allowed me to enter your house. Folks, that's called the gospel in the Old Testament. This tells us good news. The means by which we can be connected by God is not by any personal virtue or inherent merit or any holier-than-thou attitude. It has to do with the abundant loving-kindness of God. That's one word in Hebrew, chesed, chesed. Would you like to say that? Chesed. Chesed. Good. Good. If you have a cough or something, you'll be better able to pronounce it. It's a huge word in its meaning. C-H-E-S-E-D. We could spell it. Chesed. It's a different word for love than our others. This is not uh, the kind of word for love we hear in um, every country western song. I love my dog. I love my Ford pickup truck. It it isn't quite like that. Um, This is covenant love. This is marital love. This is the love of God for those whom he has entered into relationship with. This is the love of God for those he is wedded to and bound himself to. This is, these are his vows to his betrothed. This is God saying, because of our covenant bond, I'll not leave you or forsake you. You're no longer as an orphan. I haven't only granted you a pardon, I've adopted you, so come into my house. Uh, This is the kind of love for God which says in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, these are God's covenant vows. This is God saying, because you are mine, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, and in spite of you, I will love you. This is chesed love. And David knew because of it he had access to God's house. And so he says, at your holy temple, I'll bow in reverence to you. See the word bow? It's one of the words from which we get our word worship. Because that's what worship is. It's when the worshiper... uh, sublimates and submits himself or herself. When the worshiper goes low in comparison to the greatness of God. It doesn't mean literally that you have to occupy this physical posture, though you could. It's more a reflection of your heart attitude in worship. Are you going low when you worship the God on high? Now some people have a problem with this text because we know it's written by David it is identified as a psalm of David and yet in verse 7 it says at your holy temple I'll bow does anyone see a problem there yes 
Jesse, you are correct. The temple was not built in David's day. Who built the temple? Solomon. And Solomon was in what relation to David? It was his son. So the son came after the dad. The son built the temple, not the dad. So those people who have nothing else to do but try to uh, keep the Bible at arm's length because the Bible says too much about who they are, will say, look, an inaccuracy and error in the Bible because David speaks of the temple which didn't even exist. So let me respond. You see the word temple? It comes from a Hebrew word which simply means temple or tabernacle or house. It is a reference to the abode of God. And at one point in Israel's history, God said, I will establish my present in the tabernacle. And at another time he said, you can meet me at the temple. And in Christ Jesus, we have the tabernacle of God in our midst. And now you is, if you're a Christian, the place of the abode of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So those who criticize the Bible simply miss what the Hebrew word entails. It's a general term for the household of God. And surely the tabernacle did exist when David wrote this psalm. So that's just a side. I hope you don't need that stuff to believe in the Bible. Listen, when you read it, you're on safe ground. Uh, It's been tried and tested over the millennia and it has passed the test of accuracy and reliability. You can't say that for any other literature, but you can for the 66 books of the Bible. So verse 8 O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. He's in the midst of uh, an anti-God culture. He can be influenced by the evildoers around him. He knows it. He makes a petition to God. So now we see another aspect of prayer. One is to give words to where you hurt. (laughs) One is to praise God by reminding yourself of who he is. And here another aspect is to make a petition. Here's David's request. Oh God, don't let me be influenced by them. In fact, lead me in your way, not theirs. And he says, because of my foes. See the word foes or maybe enemies? In the Hebrew, it literally means those who lie in wait, waiting to ambush. You have anyone like that? Yes, see, the adversary of the brethren. Uh, Peter tells us he's like an angry lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know when you became identified with Christ, you became a target of your adversary? Why? If he could extinguish the fire in you, then God will be robbed of his glory. 
So if He could render you not living proof of a loving God, but someone who simply blends in and looks like everyone else, uh, then those around you could say, this Christ must not be real because He surely has not made any difference in your life, though you call yourself one of His followers. So you must understand there's a connection between the blessing of God and the attacks of Satan. Whomever God chooses to bless, Satan will attempt to attack. And so if you're saying, gee, ever since I became a Christian, my life is more difficult, yeah, you got it right. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you that you might be perfected. And then it says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, then why follow Christ if that's all going to happen? Well, I'll tell you why. Because He is who He is. He's the Lord and Savior. So we don't follow Him because of the benefits, though there are plenty. We follow Him because He's Lord of Lords. So you want to be careful about selling Christ to people on the basis of how life will be a bowl of cherries. No, it'll be characterized by groaning. He suffered, so shall we. That's the way it is. So, it, yeah, Charlie, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I heard Adrian Rogers talk about fidelity this morning. You know, our families are attacked by Satan so badly yes. and so harshly. And uh, he said, you know, uh, uh, don't leave. Yeah. He said, the, the Lord never left his church, never left his bride ever. Yeah. In fact, he said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Yeah. Exactly. So we abide in Christ because He'll never leave or forsake us. That's a good point. Very good. Thank you. So uh, he goes on to say in verse 9, uh, there is nothing reliable, nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part, the stuff of which they're made, their substance, their heart, their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. What a metaphor. What a picture. Their throat is like an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Ah. So those around David and by whom he doesn't want to be influenced are characterized by those whose speech is smooth but whose speech does not reflect the substance of which they're made. Now that puts us in great jeopardy and I'll tell you why. Almost all of us render decisions today and always on the basis of appearances and what our eyes and ears tell us to be true. So you watch, uh, as I do, uh, I watch this show Flipping Houses, you know, on TV. It's kind of interesting. Someone will buy this dilapidated home and budget some expense in repairing and remodeling it and then want to sell it as a profit. It's quite interesting. But then they'll get into the project and find, oh my, there's significant structural damage for which we did not budget. And it could really dip into our profit margin. So let's just cover up the structural damage with some cosmetic things and sell it that way. 
So the unwary buyer, potential buyer, comes in and sees, wow, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, nice plants and landscaping. And they're making a decision on the quality of the house, of course, on the basis of appearances, what their eyes tell them to be true. But they don't know behind it all is fundamental, foundational, structural damage. Or you're shopping for a used car. It's really interesting as you drive by a used car lot. They look great. You can see yourself in one of them. It could be a car that was submerged under eight feet of water through Hurricane Katrina, shipped over to Texas, cleaned up and painted, waxed, so that the person makes a decision on the basis of its shiny appearance. But substantively, it's a lemon. Used to live in Chicago and uh, it's called the Rust Belt because when it's wintertime there, the city would spread salt on the roads so as to melt the snow and ice. And so um, those of us who lived in Chicago all, all, uh, all used to laugh about those who would purchase cars from Chicago. They literally would bring them to the south. Because even though the bottom, the undercarriage had been rusted out, all you got to do is put some, some sealer here and there and some spray paint here and there and sell it to someone in Houston. What do they know? It's just the way it is. So we make decisions on the basis of what our senses tell us to be true. And David is saying we even do that with the smooth speech of various ones and render decisions about the character of that one on the basis of what he or she says. But we need discernment. Show me if in fact what I'm hearing is true. And so David is essentially saying what the person is saying is really not what the person is made of. In fact, that person's throat is like an open grave. That person's words are so deceptive they have the capacity to kill you, to choke out any spiritual life. So ask God for discernment. Every once in a while here, we have the privilege as ministers to meet with a couple intending on marrying. And so we meet with them and interrogate them. And I ask a variety of questions, one of which is, do you both consider yourselves to be Christians? All the time the answer is, absolutely. So my next question is, could you define for me what a Christian is? One might say, absolutely, a Christian is one who has acknowledged his sin and that what Jesus did on the cross has covered our sin. He died to pay the penalty and then he rose up from the dead where he sits at the right hand of the Father. I hear stuff like that and I go, whoa! That's a great definition of what it is to be a Christian. And then the other potential partner to this marital relationship might say, I think a Christian is someone who tries 
to live well, who doesn't hurt anybody, who lives a moral and ethical life. That happened to me recently. And so I said, well, um, I appreciate your honesty. Does that mean if I was a sincere, moral, and ethical Buddhist that I would have God's favor, access to Him personally, and uh, be redeemed? And the person said, absolutely, because a loving God uh, would not judge anyone like that. So I said to, so here you have two people identifying themselves with Christ, and if I just listen to the words, if, if I let my hearing uh, tell me what was going on, I might have committed the error of joining together two people with diametrically opposed value systems. So I said to them, I cannot marry you. I think from a spiritual point of view, you lack the compatibility required. I told them I can't keep you from being married. I do not have that authority. But I could keep me from officiating at it. And that I must do. So I encourage them to hold off on the date and spend more time reflecting on these matters. And I offered myself as a third party to help. Sometimes you do that and the parents of that young couple get upset. So I got a call and the parents <laughs> were members of this church. If you're here today, sorry, but you gave me a good illustration. And the father berated me for making his little girl cry. Aren't you as a minister paid to meet the needs of the members of the church? No, we're not paid for that. We're not paid to take on the agenda of the members of the church. We are supported to apply the agenda of the chief shepherd to whom we are accountable. So I thought I can see why this little girl is willing to compromise on her devotion to Christ because apparently it didn't mean that much to her parents. So folks, words can be smooth and flattering, but the throat of the speaker can be like an open grave and therefore it happens with spiritual leaders. I don't know how many times one of us will try to caution people about undue adherence to one we think is a false teacher and then we'll be visited or emailed by one who says, how could you say that? He is so likable. Don't you see? David says, there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. It'll destroy you. Their throat is like an open grave. It could kill out your spiritual fervor and passion and fire because they flatter with their tongue, say things you may want to hear, uh, but they don't say things we may need to hear. So David identifies them. And look what he does now in verse 10. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. 
Wow! I thought we're supposed to be nice and gentle and forgiving. You know, pray for those who abuse you and all that stuff. This looks like David is not praying for his enemies. This looks like David is praying against them. In fact, this is called an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory. It's an imprecation where you call down upon certain ones the wrath of God. Whoa! How do you square this with uh, who you think we're supposed to be? Let me tell you. Do you know, notice that David is not praying against people who have merely offended him? He's praying against those who have offended God. Look at the last phrase in verse 10. For they are rebellious against you. But aren't we all? Yes and no. We are by nature and yet there comes to be a time when we allow God to overcome our nature and implant His nature in us, so we become repentant sinners. And repentant sinners will meet up with the chesed love of God. But the unrepentant sinner, the one who has refused the abundant loving kindness of God, will in fact bring upon himself the consequences of his own lack of repentance, and when David prays God to come upon them, he really is simply asking God to be whom he is, and he is holy, and he will judge. Now, I know people don't like to hear that. We would like to separate out from the mix of God's attributes just the one we like. We like the one that says he's loving, and therefore, you know, as long as you're sincere and do the best you can, No, he doesn't grade on a curve. He's holy and he loves his holiness and judgment will follow if there's no repentance from our unholiness. So this is an imprecatory psalm which flies in the face of the uh, uh, God is love, he won't send anyone to hell. That's true. People choose to go there by rejecting Christ. So then it says in verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Uh, Do you see how he's moved from groaning to exultation and joy? You see this a lot in the Psalms where he'll begin being distressed and he'll end being filled with joy. And what has happened? Again, God hasn't changed and the circumstances may not have changed, but the one praying has changed. That's why you and I must pray. Uh, Put words to your problems. Uh, Put words to your praise. Put words to your petitions. And at the end, say, Oh, I'm so glad I belong. I'm reminded how faithful you are. I'm so glad you'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm so glad I'm in good hands. And so David says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing uh, Seventy times in the Psalms you'll see this, uh, in, this invitation to sing. Uh, singing is an expression of our joy. And, and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you, verse 12, who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. 
In fact, you surround him with favor as with a shield. So who is the righteous man or woman? It's the one who is rightly related to God. And how do you become rightly related to him? You accept his chesed love. That puts you positionally right with God. In fact, in verse 11 says that there are those who love your name. Well, that means the character, the totality of the character of God because in the Bible, a name is not just used to designate someone, it's used to describe someone. So if you love the name of God, it means you love the way God is. You love His holiness, you love His judgment, you love His compassion. You love His forgiveness and that puts you in right stead with God. It puts you in right standing to accept the totality of God's being. If you, um, if you filter it out through the lens of what's acceptable to you, I'll take this characteristic of God but not that one, then you hate the totality of God and you're not rightly related to Him and you have no cause to exult and to sing and to rejoice. But if you say, I see the God of the Bible, I accept the God of the Bible as my God, then you will be in God's house forevermore. Because you simply accept what he's made of. You know what you're made of falls short. But you find out what he's made of is more than ample to make up for your defects and deficiencies. And David says, that one, even in the midst of this world which causes us to groan, that one will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and can sing and can rejoice. Folks, that's the gospel in the Old Testament. The way to God is not to reach up to Him. The way to God is to accept the fact that He extended Himself downward to us. And will we accept what He's like? Or will we like so many say, well, I don't think that's what God is like. I think God is... You're entitled to your opinions, but they're just speculative. But the God who has revealed himself through conscience, through creation, and through scripture has made it clear what he's like. And he's loving, and he's uncompromisingly holy, and therefore he must judge sin. But because he's so loving, he let the judgment fall, if you can imagine this, even upon his own son in our place. Wow, and thus a holy God remains uncompromised and a loving God remains uncompromised and on the cross uh, the Lord satisfied all of his attributes, sin was judged and the sinner was set free. No, there's no inconsistency with God. Do you love the totality of his being? If so, rejoice. You are in right standing with Almighty God and you will not go the way of the evildoers and small talk, smooth talkers of the world because you're following in the righteous ways of Almighty God. That's good. Psalm 6 is good too. And Lord willing, and I don't know if he is because I'm not him, but if he's willing, we'll do Psalm 6 next week. So Lord Jesus, we bow before you. 
Why shouldn't we? You're bigger and greater and lofty. That's why we say, Our Father who art in heaven. Your words are trustworthy. They're not just smooth. They're substantive. And there's no inconsistency between what you say and who you are. Wonderful. Your words reflect your substance. That's why we must feast on them and meditate on them and study them and memorize them and apply them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing us to be rightly related to you and thank you for inviting us under your roof And we look forward to the time when it's all consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb and when we will dwell with you forevermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next time. Enjoy praying this week. Thank you, Charlie.